the History of the Crusades podcast presents Reconquista, the rise of Al-Andalus and the reconquest of Spain. Episode 18, Abdulrahman Third. Hello again. Last time we examined the disastrous rule of the Emir Abdullah, who managed to cling tightly to power in our Andalus for 24 years, despite being seemingly uninterested in actually governing. By the end of his reign, just about everything inside the Iberian Peninsula was flourishing, except our Andalus. King Alfonso III had expanded the Kingdom of Asturias to impressive levels, and the seeds of what would one day become the Christian entities of Catalonia and the Kingdom of Navarre had been sown. Our Andalus itself, though, seemed to be on the verge of disintegration. Outside the seat of power in Cordoba, taxes were no longer being collected, Umayyad rule was breaking down, and rebel forces were on the ascendancy. Abdullah's disastrous period of rule ended when he died in the year 912, but before we move to welcoming a new emir to the throne, we are going to head to the northern portion of the peninsula to observe the downfall of King Alfonso III. Now, as we've seen in previous episodes, King Alfonso was a highly effective and successful monarch who had taken the tiny kingdom of Asturias and expanded it out across a goodly portion of the top quarter of the Iberian Peninsula. However, despite being one of the most celebrated kings in the history of Asturias, his reign ended with a splutter and a whimper. Now, historians dispute exactly what happened, but it looks like this was predominantly the fault of King Alfonso's three sons, Garcia, Ordoño and Fruella. All three sons appear to have inherited their father's ambition and drive, but unlike their father, the three sons had no outlet through which to direct their energies, so they mostly spent their time dreaming of big futures for themselves and working out various strategies for booting their father off his throne. In the year 909 or 910, they succeeded, and King Alfonso III was forced to abdicate. After handing the kingdom he had worked so hard to expand to his three sons, King Alfonso made a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela before dying in December of the year 910. So, how did King Alfonso's sons deal with their rise to power? 
You would expect the eldest son, Garcia, to inherit his father's kingdom, then possibly place his younger brothers in positions of power. But the two younger brothers, Ordoño and Fruela, were having none of that. All three men were ambitious and were not only prepared to stab their father in the back in order to advance themselves, they were fully prepared to attack each other as well. So there was only really one way forward. The newly expanded kingdom of Asturias was split into three separate kingdoms so that each son could inherit a section and become a king. The new kingdoms were the Kingdom of Asturias, which was inherited by Fruella, the Kingdom of Galicia, which went to Ordoño, and the Kingdom of Leon, which was claimed by the eldest son, Garcia. This dinky little plan, where every child wins a prize after having booted their father off the throne, didn't work out in the long run, though. In fact, by the year 925, only 15 years after the forced abdication of King Alfonso, all three kings, Garcia, Ordoño and Fruella, had died. The good news was that this meant that the three kingdoms pretty much merged back into one. Garcia died first leaving no heir, so the kingdom of Leon was inherited by the next eldest son, Ordoño, who merged it into his kingdom, Galicia. However, Ordoño also died, leaving no heirs, meaning that the combined kingdoms of Leon and Galicia were inherited by the only son left standing, King Fruella of Asturias. But then Fruella also died, plunging Asturias into a prolonged succession crisis. The upshot of all of this is that, unlike his predecessors, the next emir of Al-Andalus won't have to worry too much about Asturian expansion or aggression for the next little while. So, who is this next emir of Al-Andalus? Well, he's a young man with a familiar name, Abdurrahman. Twenty-year-old Abdurrahman was Abdullah's grandson, the son, in fact, of one of Abdullah's murder victims. Abdurrahman himself was blonde with blue eyes, by virtue of the fact that his grandmother had been Abdurrahman's Basque wife, and his mother was a Frankish woman. In addition to being fair-haired, Abdurrahman was also seriously short. In fact, his legs were so much shorter than average that when he rode his horse, his stirrups had to be raised to almost comical levels, so that they were just below the saddle. There is no indication that Abdurrahman was sensitive about his stature, but it does seem that he disliked his blonde hair, with Brian Catlos noting in his book Kingdoms of Faith that Abdurrahman occasionally dyed his beard in an attempt to emphasise his Arab heritage. Despite being only relatively young, 
short and blonde, and despite being the emir's grandson and not his son, Abdullah had singled out Abdurrahman to be his chosen successor, which turned out to be a very savvy move. In fact, in his book Muslim Spain and Portugal, a political history of Al-Andalus, Hugh Kennedy describes the decision by Abdullah to declare his grandson Abdurrahman to be his successor as one of the few moves made by Abdullah during his reign which couldn't be faulted. Young Abdurrahman wasn't an obvious choice for Amir. Abdullah had ordered the execution of Abdurrahman's father, who was Abdullah's son Muhammad, when Abdurrahman was only a baby. In addition to being blonde-haired and blue-eyed, so perhaps not looking like a classic Umayyad Arab, Abdurrahman had little military experience and was not considered to be a religious leader. He had a number of uncles who possessed better military skills and more experience in administration than he did, but despite these apparent shortcomings, Abdul Rahman was Abdullah's chosen successor, and he became the new emir, Abdul Rahman III, on the 16th of October in the year 912. Now, despite the fact that he was only 20 years old when he became the ruler of Al-Andalus, it seems that Abdul Rahman had spent a considerable amount of time planning for his rise to power, because as soon as he became the emir, he seemed to know exactly what to do, and he hit the ground running, so to speak. As we've already mentioned, the situation in Al-Andalus at the end of Abdullah's reign was pretty dire, with central administrative control having effectively broken down. As soon as Abdurrahman III settled into his new position in Cordoba, he arranged for the areas adjacent to the city to fall under his control. This was easier said than done, as few local leaders outside the capital city now accepted the authority of Cordoba, and the army, which had been the tool traditionally used by emirs to subdue their subjects, had pretty much disintegrated. Still, Abdurrahman was persistent, dogged and methodical in reasserting the emir's power. His policy appears to have been one of slowly but carefully and methodically spreading his power out from Cordoba and putting in place measures to ensure the permanent re-establishment of central rule. This process included destroying the power base and authority of rebel leaders who had risen to prominence during the past couple of decades, which, astonishingly, Abdurrahman III was able to do. How did he do this? Well, by a combination of the popular carrot-and-stick method. The stick part pretty much exclusively involved sieges. 
Abdul Rahman III seemed to have a knack for sieges, and in some places, sporting particularly stubborn rebel leaders such as Babastro and Toledo, his sieges developed an air of a permanent arrangement, sporting extensive infrastructure to support the Emir's forces, including marketplaces. While he didn't remain at every siege personally, Abdul Rahman III installed a trusted military commander at each siege, and the siege itself appeared to be an arrangement which the emir could quite happily carry on indefinitely. The prospect of having your rebel enclave subject to a siege which could go on forever if need be was certainly a stick which prompted many rebel leaders to surrender, but another important factor involved Abdul Rahman's carrot. The carrot which was offered by the emir to the rebels was in the form of leniency. Should the besieged rebel leader surrender to the emir's forces, well, he wouldn't be executed or subjected to harsh punishment. Instead, most rebel leaders were offered positions inside the emir's administration, either in the army or within government. This offered the rebel a way forward, which involved the rebel not only staying alive, but also holding on to a degree of power, although in the future, that power would be executed in support of a Mayad rule inside Al-Andalus, and not against it. To ensure that rebel leaders who had surrendered wouldn't be tempted back to their old strongholds, Abdul Rahman III made sure that every rebel stronghold was demolished stone by stone after surrendering, and that when a new structure was built, it would be garrisoned by men loyal to Cordoba. Now, the dismantling of rebel strongholds, the removal of rebel leaders from power, and the reassertion of control by Cordoba across Al-Andalus didn't happen overnight, but it did happen. Actually, the entire process took around 25 years in total, but gradually, methodically, Abdul Rahman III brought every single rebel leader to heel. The king of Seville surrendered to the emir relatively early on and was rewarded by being granted a temporary position inside the administration at Cordoba. The rebel strongholds to hold out the longest were at Babastro, Badajoz, Toledo and Zaragoza. Ibn Hafsan, the rebel of Babastro, who we discussed back in episode 16, died in the year 917, only five years after Abdul Rahman's rise to power. However, Ibn Hafsan had four sons, who were all determined to continue their father's rebel stance and maintain the family's hold over the southern portion of the peninsula as their father had managed to do for the past 30 or so years. They buried their father's body at Babastro, then prepared the hilltop fortress to continue its stand against Cordoba. 
By the year 927, Abdul Rahman III decided that enough was enough. He established a permanent siege around the hilltop fortress, and early the following year, Babastro finally capitulated. Abdul Rahman ordered the body of the old rebel leader, Ibn Hafsan, to be exhumed from its grave. Then he ordered it to be transported to Cordoba, where he had it crucified on the gate of the city as a warning to other rebel holdouts. He was more merciful, however, to the old rebel's sons. One son who had negotiated the surrender of Babastro was singled out for particular honours by being accepted into the emir's army. Badajoz, the seat of power of the rebel Algiliqui, was to prove a little trickier to subdue, as, while Babastro was a single fortress, Badajoz had developed into a large town. Algiliqui himself had died prior to Abdul Rahman's rise to power, but his extended family members, known as the Banu Marwan, maintained a rebel stance over the fortified city. Abdul Rahman ordered a blockade of the city and also used a type of economic warfare, ordering the productive fruit trees in farms outside the city walls to be destroyed. The city held out for a lengthy period of time, but the last of the Banu Marwan finally surrendered in the year 930. The defeated rebels were relocated to Cordoba and were given senior positions inside the military. The city of Toledo, which had been rebelling on and off since the establishment of Al-Andalus, finally capitulated in the year 932, after a lengthy siege and after also having its fruit trees destroyed. Following the surrender of the city, Abdul Rahman garrisoned the town with his own hand-picked men, then appointed a loyal governor to enforce Cordoba's rule inside Toledo. The final major holdout was the border city of Zaragoza to the east, a place which, like Toledo, seemed to have been in a near-constant cycle of rebellion. Zaragoza submitted to the emir's rule in the year 932. So, by the year 932, Al-Andalus was, perhaps for the first time, truly subject to central rule, which was, considering the condition it had been in when Abdul Rahman rose to power, pretty impressive. So, was subduing rebels and reasserting control by Cordoba the only abilities in Abdurrahman's skill set? No. You might be interested to know that he also successfully overhauled and reformed the military forces inside Al-Andalus. In order to dilute the power which had been amassed by local military commanders, Abdul Rahman imported large quantities of slaves to serve in the military. 
In addition, he recruited a bunch of Berber mercenary forces from northern Africa. This move effectively de-Arabized the military forces, so to speak, and ensured that the armies across Al-Andalus reported to Cordoba and not to local governors. Abdulrahman III used his newly refurbished forces to successfully defend his northern borders against aggression from the Christian north, and to also keep the notoriously fickle frontier region near the Pyrenees Mountains under the thumb of Cordoba. He also expanded his navy. He established naval bases along the Mediterranean coastline and used them to fend off raids by hostile forces, while also turning a blind eye when his ships engaged in the occasional spot of piracy on the side. Now, you might be asking yourselves, well, now that Abdurrahman III has everything pretty much under control, does he have a plan in mind? Well, yes, he absolutely does. Only 17 years into his rule, Abdurrahman III made a bold move that would have been absolutely unthinkable until that point in time, and which propelled Al-Andalus up the leaderboard of countries until it became, in the words of Brian Catlos, and I quote, the greatest and most prosperous kingdom in contemporary Europe, end quote. Ever since the establishment of Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula, the name of the Caliph had been mentioned in mosques across Al-Andalus after the conclusion of the call to prayer, with the Abbasid ruler in Baghdad being the focus during recent times. Well, not anymore. At noon on the 17th of January in the year 929, as Muslims gathered inside the Great Mosque at Cordoba for Friday prayers, the Abbasid ruler in Baghdad was not mentioned. Instead, the Imam hailed Abdurrahman III as the Prince of the Faithful. Abdurrahman III was announcing to the world that he was no longer just the emir of Al-Andalus, he was now a caliph of Islam. Join me next time as Abdurrahman III launches the caliphate of Al-Andalus into a new golden age. Until next time, bye for now. This podcast is powered by Patreon. If you can spare $1 per month and would like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com and search for History of the Crusades, or go to our website, crusadespod.com, and click on the Patreon link. Your $1 contribution will mean you get access to an extra episode every fortnight on topics related to the Crusades, and it means that you are powering the History of the Crusades podcast. Thank you to all who have signed up so far. So-
Sorry.